Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Niklas Savos, and with me in the studio is my friend, Eddie Palmgren. How are you today? I feel really good. I can sense that I'm developing a lot mentally right now, and it's coming from all the conversations with you outside of the studio and also all the guests we have here on the podcast and everything that I'm reading, uh, which is very, very inspirational. And uh, it has also led to us making this commitment uh, not to look at stock prices while the market is open, uh, which has really put uh, more focus on what really matters. And it makes me more calm as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, sometimes uh, such a small commitment can mean um, such a big life change, to be honest. I mean, just to to stay calm in the midst of... uh, of a, of a market that is uh, crazy sometimes. Yeah, hopefully you make better decisions. Yeah, hopefully. So how are you? Yeah, I'm good and excited to speak with our guest, Eric Jorgensen, a fellow podcast host, product strategist and author. Today we're going to talk about his book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, published in September 2020 with a foreword by Tim Ferriss. What is the book about? Yeah, the subtitle is A Guide to Wealth and Happiness. And to me, that really sums up the book uh, extremely well. I think the combination of wealth and happiness is somewhat unusual. And the, the, the one title I can think about is Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green, who we talked with in episode four. And the book is based on wisdom from Naval Ravikant. Who is he? Naval grew up under poor conditions in India in the 1970s and has become an icon in Silicon Valley and the startup culture around the world. He has founded several tech companies, uh, maybe most known for AngelList in 2010. And he is also an angel investor himself. He participated in Twitter and Uber. And besides being a world-class business operator and investor, Naval is also followed by millions of people around the world for his advice on building wealth and living happily, which he generously shares on his social media and podcast and now also in this book. What is uh, Eric Jorgensen's role in this? So Eric Jorgensen has done a marvelous job threading together Naval's wisdom from interviews, tweets and podcasts into a book that reads like an intimate one-to-one conversation. We think the book has a really high value and that everyone should read it at least once. Uh, Worth mentioning is that they have created the book as a public service, so it's actually available for free in PDF and e-reader versions on navalmanac.com. That is indeed incredible and we are excited to have the author of this timeless book on the show. Here comes our conversation with Eric Jorgensen. Hi, Eric, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Hey, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Where are you today? I'm in Kansas City, uh, nursing a cup of coffee and getting up early to talk to you guys. I'm excited about this. Perfect. We're very thankful for that. And being a podcast from Sweden, having heard you say that sauna is a sort of meditation for you and knowing your name sounds very Nordic, we we have to start by asking (laughs) you, what is your heritage? I, I think I'm, yeah, at least half uh, pretty deep Nordic roots. Um, I'm very tall. It turns out that I'm uh, good at rowing and swimming and I love a sauna. So I think those are all just like in my genes. Um, I, I've got, my family's at least a few generations in America. So I, I don't know too much about those roots, but um, undeniably they are there to the point where like my nickname among my work friends is, is Eric the Viking, which was quickly just shortened to Viking. <laughs> so I just like go by Viking in the office. <laughs> Perfect. We feel the connection here. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about what you have done in life so far? Um, yeah, I, I was I was very lucky to have kind of grown up in a small business household. Um, like my grandfather started a business um, that my dad ended up running. And so the dinner table conversation was kind of just like, 
you know, making payroll and worry about customers and stuff like that. So I grew up uh, thinking that like an entrepreneur was just a normal job. So I was selling candy out of my locker and getting paid to give kids rides to school and starting blogs and stuff in college, um, which is when Facebook kind of became big. And that was when I was like, oh, not just entrepreneurship, but like tech entrepreneurship. I ended up just like leaving school after four years, which felt both weird and normal. So I kind of like dropped out uh, and eventually got a degree, moved to San Francisco to join this startup, which was kind of a wild like 10 year ride um, that we just sold last year. And I did a ton of different jobs there, um, but lived in San Francisco for a while and traveled all over and met a bunch of interesting tech people and learned that kind of that whole world. Um, and for the last year, I've kind of been on like a, I don't know, like a learning slash side project sabbatical um, where I've just been writing more and podcasting and um, working on my second book and doing more investing um, and just kind of catching up on all the stuff that like I wanted to do to suit my ADD that I didn't get a chance to for the last couple of years while I was, you know, working hard. And the part of investing in companies, where did that come from and where did it start? Oh, um, well, I, I mean, also the family background piece was very like, uh, you know, John Bogle, Vanguard. Um, I read a lot of Morgan Housel. I'm like all in on, you know, slow and steady uh, value, read a ton of Buffett and Munger. Um, I, I don't have like the temperament to be a super good um, like value investor. Um, like my pants just aren't pleated that way. But I have made a few quite good so far um, angel investments just by kind of being in the like tech ecosystem. And so I'm kind of a weird mix of like value mindset, uh, indexing for like most of my personal stuff. Um, but like for work, I mean, we've done a bunch of angel investments and I'm actually starting a small um, venture fund with some friends to scale that up a little bit. Um, and so I, it's a very, it's kind of a bizarre mix, like of ideologies, uh, to be honest, but uh, it's, it is working and suits me and my sort of unique um, idiosyncrasies, I guess. Well diversified. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Do, do you think about it as a, as a, like a barbell strategy? Yeah, a little bit. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm too like steeped in the value uh, kind of like don't lose money thing to go all in on tech. And I have some friends who um, literally are like 95% of their net worth in crypto in a few tokens with leverage. Uh, and while I admire that and respect it and deeply love to watch the chaos of that unfold, um, that is not my temperament. Like I just, I could never do that. I have too much respect for the hard work that went into building the pile in the first place. <laughs> um, and so I, I definitely have a, um, a different mindset where it comes to like protect nurse compound and a different mindset where it comes to like, all right, let's take some like big swings over here that are like very high multiple um, all or nothing power law returns. Um, and I think there's a, a role for both of those, um, especially, and maybe not for everybody, but especially for like someone who has, you know, a decade plus in tech and connections to those kind of opportunities and things like that. You know, if you're, um, if you're outside that world, it's kind of hard to conceive or, or you're more likely to just not hit those power law returns, um, which really, really matters, turns out. Um, so don't take big swings if you don't think you can, you have a chance for those really big returns. But um, having seen, it, it took me a while to sort of trust the information feed and the network and the, see that play out a few times before I'm actually like, okay, actually like chips on the table in this now. 
really interesting. Um, in the uh, intro, we have tried to explain who uh, Naval Ravikant is. Um, and uh, tell us about how, how Naval crossed your path the first time. The first time, uh, it was pretty interesting. I was like, I had just won a hackathon, like a weekend long hackathon. And I was meeting this person, uh, named Bo Fishback, who I became like good friends with eventually, but I was like 19 years old and didn't know anything about the whole world. Um, and I was like trying to start this company and he gave me a few piece, sort of pieces of advice and information to go look at. And one of the things was like, go read everything Paul Graham has ever written and go read everything on venture hacks which was the blog that nivia and naval were writing at the time and this was like i don't know circa 2010 maybe and so i did that was like my first introduction to naval and it was really sort of a um like hey this person is writing about all the stuff that you need to know as a founder um and that was actually kind of an early that was very early in naval's career too i mean he's um he had not had a lot of big breakout hits at that point. He was like selling $10 PDFs, you know, of, of like, uh, founder advice for fundraising. Uh, I don't think he had, he had not yet invested in Uber. Maybe he had in Twitter, but everyone in San Francisco in 2008 invested in Twitter. Um, so it was a very, like, it was not obvious that I would spend the next 10 years following this person, but like I just kept learning and following him and going to some talks and really watched as what he talked about revolved from, you know, Hey, here's the game theory of venture capital through, Hey, here's how I'm building my company to, Hey, here's, you know, this is the beginning of crypto into philosophy and into, you know, happiness and all of the things that he kind of talks about now and that we cover in the book. And on your website, ejorgensen.com, we can, read about the books that you have most influenced you, for example, Poor Charlie's Almanac, Principles by Ray Dalio, Zero to One, and uh, Seeking Wisdom. So we're curious to hear like, why uh, you chose these books and how they have inspired you to compile the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Those books are influential to me for a number of reasons. Like Poor Charlie's Almanac was probably the most important book I ever read as far as like I read it at the right time. And then I daisy chained a bunch of reading as a result of that. I kind of like, Oh, I should go read Benjamin Franklin. I'll go read Robert, Robert Cialdini. I'll go read. Um, so I, I took a lot of sort of Munger's advice from that book. Um, but that, that set of books are really, I read just kind of trying to learn, but as I looked back, I, I was trying to figure out like what happened. Like when, as I published the, the Balmanac, I was like, people kept asking me how this happened. Uh, like, and I was like, I, I don't really know. Let me like f- dig and figure it out. And I realized that like, some of my favorite books I've ever read weren't written directly by the authors. You know, Poor Charlie's Almanac is a compilation by Peter Kaufman of talks slash biography and sidebars and all kinds of stuff. Seeking Wisdom is Peter Bevelin sort of pulling from all these different sources. All Peter Bevelin's books, um, which are all amazing, are all kind of compilations. Um, I mean, my friend Max Olson wrote the, the Letters of Warren Buffett. Like those are all books that are built of raw materials that are not books and they're not written in traditional narrative prose by the author. And I think having some of those installed in my head for years kind of showed me the path or at least showed me that there was a path there. It's like, Hey, you, like you can write a book on behalf of somebody else. And I know that because I've seen it done for Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett like 10 times um, and they make great books. So, so why not extend that um, to this situation where I was desperately wishing that, um, I, I was I was reading principles and there's a piece where Ray Dalio is like, I wrote this book because I wished some of my heroes had written a book that t- 
told me how they thought about the world. And I would like to read a lot more of those. And I was like, yeah, shit, I wish Naval had written principles. Um, and sort of that wish for the final product combined with the fact that, you know, I'd seen all of these great books arise as compilations. I was like, well, he does have a lot of raw material. Uh, maybe there's, maybe there's something to kind of put together here. Like, I think we could do something great with it. I've certainly learned a lot from him. Um, but all the values locked up in Twitter and podcasts, which are not certainly not super mainstream. They're both a little bit subcultures. They're a little bit unsearchable and they're a little bit ephemeral. And, um, books are an amazing technology that is incredibly widespread and there's well-trodden paths. And, uh, so maybe I should, maybe there's a little transformation and, and value to be created by doing that. And then you created this great book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, and it is divided into two parts, wealth and happiness. And the happiness part starts with a quote that the three big ones in life are wealth, health and happiness. And we pursue them in that order, but their importance is reverse. So we're thinking that if happiness is the most important, how come you decided to start the book with wealth? Yeah, so I went through a lot of drafts. So there was actually a version of this book that did start with happiness. And I went through a lot of sort of peer readers and reviewers. I would send the manuscript to people and then have conversations with them afterwards, um, which is, I, I give a lot of credit to that process in like how this got you know, refined. Um, and someone said like, yeah, I mean, like, I like this, this is kind of true and I get it, but it's really weird to like, just get dropped into a conversation with someone and have them start dropping like these Zen Buddhist cones about like, deep, like sort of abstract concepts of happiness and how I should be living my life. Like it was kind of like, bro, I don't even know you. Like we just met, like, don't be telling me how to live my life and like what makes me happy or not. Um, which if you think about it is like, you know, if you met someone in real life, it'd be a pretty weird start to the conversation. Um, so, so it ended up, uh, and, and it's really like, I do think they unfold. And I think, you know, part of the reason for that quote is meaningful is like, we all know that like health is more important than wealth and happiness is more important than health. And like we all intuit that, but we still all move through them in the same order. Um, and so I think it would be, I think there is a logical progression to putting those things in that order. Even if it's not the, um, the medicine that we should take, it is, it is the medicine that we, that we or is, it is what we actually eat first. So putting it at the beginning makes sense. Yeah, it's giving people the candy that they want first, and then going from there. Yeah, I see this this trend. Right, I did kind of a conversations and workshop after the book came out with people, and like we had a wealth section and a happiness section, and like a hundred people showed up to wealth, and like forty showed up to happiness. Um, and it may be because happiness is harder and more abstract and more personal. Um, but it may be really because everyone just believes like they need to work harder on getting wealthy. And then when they're wealthy, they'll be happy. Um, which is what the whole second part will tell you isn't true, but that's, um, it is so hard to shake that belief. If it was just a book about happiness, I don't know. I don't know what it'd be doing. Maybe, maybe it would be doing amazing and everybody would want to read about it. But, um, the fact that they're two are connected and it shows you how, and that the levers are all there, I actually think is um, is a compelling and kind of unique piece and hopefully instructive and useful for people. Definitely. And I'm sure many of our listeners are interested in building wealth. So we'll get into the happiness part a bit later, but start off with the, <laughs> the part about wealth where Naval's tweet is how to get rich without getting lucky is 
That's a very good one. So we're wondering, what is the biggest misconception about wealth? And Naval would probably say, and I think he addresses it in that first tweet storm, that like, it is not necessarily about hard work, um, it, it, especially in this sort of age of increasing leverage. Like, you can get incredibly wealthy with with one or two really good decisions. Um, and you know, there's a lot good to be said about hard work, but it is not sufficient to say, like, if you work hard, you'll be wealthy. Um, you really have to spend a lot more time thinking and looking and examining sort of the nature of the universe in a little bit of a three-body problem way to understand what the high leverage actions are to achieve your outcome, I think. So that, the, probably the biggest misconception is um, the correlation of hard work to, to wealth creation. Yeah, I think it's also important to understand that the, the concept of money is just the currency between wealth and time, as you very well illustrate in the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the... Um, Yeah, the other one in there, maybe like, it's a subtle nuance, actually, but I think he does a good job of saying, like, there's a difference between money and wealth. And like, when you trade your time for money, you aren't creating wealth. Um, wealth is having assets that earn while you sleep. And sort of compi compounding and growing those um, is a very, very different game from, you know, just making your number go up and, and going directly into savings, right? Uh, those are extremely different games and, and changing your mindset to realize the game that you're playing and and figure out sort of the nature of it is is an incredibly important first step. I would think the, the other misconception, actually, I think, um, or, or maybe like missed concept is the um, is the one about if you if you secretly uh, sort of despise wealth, it will elude you like there there's a. Um, There's sort of a meme going around of like, oh, billionaires are evil. They're extracting value. This is sort of like bizarre anti-capitalist movement after um, what, everything that we've seen the last hundred years and all of the reduction in poverty that we've seen. It like it is a very strange sort of cultural swing um, that for a bunch of people that I think just don't really understand sort of the, the benefits of capitalism and the nature of it and and don't have a better suggestion. They're just sort of um, just sort of railing against whatever exists currently. Um, but there's a bunch of people who I think have either intentionally or sort of like through the air taken in this concept that, um, you know, to have wealth means that you have done something wrong or, or wronged someone else or taken more than your share. Um, I think that's one fundamentally wrong, but I think two, having any of that belief inside you uh, will so create this sort of self-limiting behavior um, where if you think your goal is to become wealthy, but you also hold those values, it'll be extremely difficult. And you have this like weird underlying subconscious conflict um, that'll be difficult to resolve and, and get you feeling stuck. So I don't know if that's a misconception, but it is, I think, an important piece of the puzzle. And I'm glad... Um, Naval sort of dropped that in there because I think that's probably a lot of people's sticking point that's just buried deep enough um, that they have no idea. And do you think there's a difference between becoming rich and being wealthy? Um, we should define those terms if we're going to have a you know <laughs> a, <laughs> uh, a deep debate about it. I don't know. R rich just feels like a slightly gaudier word to me in this context, but um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure who uh, who shares that perception. And uh, I mean, I really like the fact that uh, Naval speaks a lot about um, what not to do. In many books, you read about what, what to do to be successful, and and uh, maybe sometimes it's more important what to avoid. Um, so, um, what do you wh what does Naval say is necessary to avoid uh, in order to be able to reach wealth? Um, if, if you're looking at it, you might have the more complete list than me. I know. Um 
avoiding sort of short-termism in all its forms, um, like getting wealthy, I think by almost any means is a long-term game. Um, and you have to think over long time horizons in order to accomplish that. You have to understand the power of compounding, um, certainly avoiding all sort of risk of ruin, you know, don't, don't put your whole bankroll on anything. Um, stay out of jail, uh, maintain your, your morals, um, sort of at all costs because that ultimately becomes your, um, He's, I think he's got an interesting story in there about Warren Buffett and how like this, his reputation alone and the, um, our shared sort of awareness and trust in his morality is worth just billions and billions and billions of dollars. Like who else can get the call to like bail out the U S economy and, and whose mere association with sort of a, a bank is like, Oh, that, okay. Well, if Warren Buffett bought some stock, like the bank is saved. Um, like that is an incredible asset that is, is maybe less about what he did and more about what he didn't do. Like that is what 80 years of absolutely pristine moral record looks like. Um, which is a really, really incredible thing. So if we, if we do avoid the, the biggest traps, um, which are the most important decisions and actions to improve our odds of uh, building wealth? I think the funny part is like, it's very difficult to predict in advance, right? Um, I think they've also like 99% of effort is wasted. Uh, you just don't know which, um, which of those 1% of actions is, is going to turn out to be incredibly important. Um, that's probably even more true with, uh, you know, angel investing and um, the, in the tech world than, some of these value things, but you know, Buffett and Munger have said like, you know, you remove two or three of the stocks from our long-term track record, you know, Coke and Geico and C's. And it's like, we have a very average track record minus, you know, our, th- our three or four best. Um, and they don't even have a lot of, you know, punches in the card. So it, it is, I think true in every domain. Um, you know, on the indexing side, like I have sat friends down, and spent two hours setting up a Vanguard account and an auto withdrawal and been like, please forget this is here. And then call me in 50 years and tell me, thank God, these were the two most important hours you ever spent in your whole life. Um, so like, you know, these, these sort of simple, small actions, um, can be incredibly impactful and it just takes, it takes a little bit of perspective on knowing even what the range of those actions could be. Uh, and then, and then sort of the discipline to get rid of the, the short term, like seemingly important stuff and, and look at those really high leverage, um, high leverage actions. The things that they have in common are probably um, that they're either really long term, uh, that they have sort of this uncapped outcome or that they or that they are moves backed by leverage. Right. So, you know, in- installing a new tool. um giving capital to someone else, like things that don't involve like this ongoing sort of cost um, are probably the most likely to fall into that camp. It's interesting how, how this, I mean, both me and Eddie are, are active investors, but it's, it's interesting how much, and when you think about it, how much time um, it takes from everything else you want to achieve in life. But just making the decision once, you're going to do an, yeah, save through an index fund and, and that's it. It's quite compelling. I, I think if you're not interested in, in investing, then it's poss- probably the best advice you can, you can give. 
or or if you're interested in it but not that good at it <laughs> like, you know, it takes a few years to figure that out probably but but also i think about innovation and naval says that scale what society wants but doesn't know how to get and that that, that is a way to getting to the wealth but that, this to me implies that the society always wants new things and that you have to innovate and innovate but we also know that some people say that we should look out for what doesn't change and people have been drinking coke for the last hundred of years or so so what are your thoughts on that it, it this is one of those like almost not quite paradox but like something um there is always something changing and i love i love contemplating the sort of mind-bogglingly vast economy and thinking about the frontiers of humanity really in, in sort of all their forms which i think i think like is a combination of art and science and entrepreneurship, right? Like those are the sort of interactions with the unknown where things are like constantly getting pushed out. Um, I, I think, you know, there's people who place bets on different things. Um, and, you know, some people bet on things changing, right? Like, you know, Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist is kind of like, I'm betting against Buffett on everything. I'm betting that things, I'm betting on things that change and Buffett is betting on things that don't. Um, I think that's, there will always be things that are changing. There will always be things that don't change. Um, I mean, yes, people have been drinking Coke for the last hundred years, um, but there's not cocaine in it anymore. Um, and actually like now diet Coke is way more popular than regular Coke. So like, it's not like that hasn't changed. Um, and it's not like Coke's strategy hasn't, you know, oh my God, we have to become global. Oh my God, we have to, you know, pivot to fountains. Oh my God, like, you know, the... Uh, centralized media like enabled coke in some ways that it could do you know sort of national advertising and uh, broadcast advertising and i think a reasonable question is like could coke get created today um w without like brand advertising being as, as sort of like unifying and powerful like i don't know um but is is the structure of media changing enough to destroy coke like i don't i also don't know um but a lot more things are getting sort of, um, I don't know if compart not compartmentalized is the wrong word, but um, sort of customized. Like we, we are, we are becoming, um, there will be more and more products for smaller and smaller groups of people. Um, you know, we don't all, we don't all eat like Prego sauce the same way. Now there's like 95,000 toothpaste options and like spaghetti sauce options. Um, and like, maybe that will happen to Coke at some point. Like, you know, I already kind of, mix those things up um in, in the paradox of like things that change and things that don't I actually think jeff bezos is probably like the most interesting middle of that maniagram um he's using he's he's looking at the things that will never change in customer demand right they'll always want lower prices they'll always want more selection and he's using technology um which is ever changing to satiate those sort of persistently those persistent demands. Um, so it's not hard to look out 10 years and predict what will be in demand. Um, then look around and say, like, what are the tools available to me to sell, serve that? Um, like, I think that's a really interesting piece. Um, you know, I'm enough of a technologist, like I would rather bet on new technologies changing and look for ways to bring in new technologies to change sort of the fundamental status of the human nature, um, which you know, I, I'm incredibly glad now that the richest person in the world is a founder and an engineer and not a capital allocator. Like, I think that is just better for humanity. I think 
the more engineers we have um, and the more scientists and the faster technology is advancing and getting deployed and getting distributed and getting used, um, sort of the better off we are all going to be. I think capital allocation is a very important role in achieving that. Uh, but I don't think, I don't, I don't know that like our best and brightest becoming capital allocators in mass um, in financializing new things is, is like in the benefit to the benefit or their highest and best use for the growth of the species. Um, so I, I always lean a little bit more towards technology um, and looking to improve things sort of in a new way, not just keep them the same. I read, the, I reread the zero to one quite recently. And I think mm. uh, that, that idea really, um, yeah, get, gets hammered in, in that book. Do you agree or? Yeah, that's a great book. I love zero to one. Um, I think that's a good, there's a, there's a, um, Nivy has a blog post that's sort of a similar piece where it's like, you know, the thing that defines a startup is delivering a new level of quality at a new level of scale. You know, if you give up the desire to reach a new level of quality, then you're McDonald's. If you give up the, the, um, desire to reach a new level of scale, then you're the four seasons. You just created like a new luxury product. But if you can push out the whole frontier of both quality and scale at the same time, you have benefited a massive number of people, including the consumer surplus. Um, you've created and captured new value. And that is almost always impossible without new technology. There are versions of it that is business model innovations or there's business uh, versions of it that are um, you know, not technological in nature, but almost all of them come from some new some new technology. I think it is a safe bet over time to, especially as the pace of technology innovation is increasing, like that frontier is moving faster and it's expanding faster um, to sort of keep looking at that the pr- set of problems that is never going to change and set of desires and keep looking around for new technologies that are going to improve it. Um, and as those technologies compound, like the total space of this keeps getting bigger. And so there is more and more and more opportunity every day my favorite illustration of like, it's one of those things that's easy to, um, it's easy to say, but difficult to conceptualize or, or believe really. Um, but I think there's this amazing proof point for it actually, which is that like for basically the whole history of Google, every single day, 15% of searches are completely unique. Even as the search value has increased, even as like more of the world has come online, like one in eight searches basically is brand new every day. And that is like almost a, you can't imagine a better data set to quantify like the rate of innovation and change and newness and whether that's a new celebrity or a new song or a new company or a new technology or like any of the new language, like coming online, there's just always that frontier and it's almost a fixed scale. It's not like it's the same number. It is as the, you know, balloon gets bigger, the, the total volume of the size of the, frontier of the balloon also keeps getting bigger. Uh, so there is there is an ever-expanding opportunity in that frontier and just so many exciting opportunities in it um, that I, I hope I hope people um, still appreciate, you know, and never feel that scarcity mindset of like, oh, the good ideas are gone or the technology has already been deployed. Like it is, it is always growing. It's in- interesting how much uh, Google should have an information edge based on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a, a concept that was quite interesting as well. I, I uh, We interviewed uh, Gautam Baid on uh, his, his fantastic book, The Joys of Compounding. And there he, he doesn't 
um, only writes about uh, compounding um, money, but also about compounding that as a force that that's important uh, for everything in life, more or less. And I think that that was really something that I thought about when reading. Uh, the almanac and Naval says capital is just the beginning so um, besides exponential growth of money uh, what other re- rewards are there for playing the long-term game uh, I think the other the other big thing that he hits on in there is um, compounding trust and compounding wisdom um, which is really those are related things um, but it's, it's very difficult to replace the feeling of working with a small handful of people that you really know and really trust over a very long period of time. And the feeling of sort of working with and for each other um, on a team and knowing that those people have your back and that you are sort of working in service of them as well. Um, And, you know, to our point, to our our sort of note about Warren Buffett and, and the reputation that he has at scale over time, you know, you don't have to be Warren Buffett, like having a sterling reputation with, five to 10 people who you respect over the long course of your career who would, you know, at the drop of a hat and with no further questions asked, like do a deal with you or invest in you or have you invest in them. Um, you know, that they could very easily become one of those few actions, um, with massively outsized results. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the compounding of, of trust over time is incredibly important. Um, and reputation, um, you know, wisdom, also, like it's very difficult to become to learn so much on your own. It's a very big world. Um, there's a lot going on. You can't be an expert in everything. Um, so th- those kind of come together. And actually, uh, Sam Hinkie is uh, somebody I was lucky to meet, and I've loved his uh, podcast appearances and some of his writing. And uh, you know, the, the whole tagline of his life is basically like compounding. You know. Love, love, trust, and capital, or trust, wisdom, and capital, I think, um, is like the the tagline of his whole fund and how he's arranged his whole life. And I think that's just absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, certainly some some level of enlightenment. Um, and I've try, I try to find my own version of that without, um, without copying it directly, because I think it's just so on the nose. I come to think of the quote by Harvey Firestone that we read about in Poor Charlie's Almanac, that one has to get perspective and one can get it from books or from people but preferably from both so really about acquiring knowledge and wisdom and that's what we're trying to do in this podcast with with you and our other guests so something we have to talk about is also leverage because i know that's a favorite part of you in the book and we also are really interested in this topic and naval says that there are three broad types and that they have emerged one by one and they are all still around but one is now superior so can you tell us a bit about this evolution? Yeah, um, I think leverage is, is, there's kind of a whole chapter dedicated to it in the book. And people, uh, it's probably the thing that I get the most follow-up questions on. You know, people reach out and say like, hey, where else can I read or learn more about leverage? Um, you know, is there a book on it or is there something else? And I, I couldn't find anything. Um, so I started really digging more and learning more and writing more about this. So I kind of felt like it was the biggest unanswered question left for me, at least after reading the book was like, okay, like, but where is the expanded version of this mental model? How can I learn a ton more about it? How can I apply it? What are more examples? Show me case studies, show me frameworks. Like, and that's all kind of 
um, I've been sort of working on that for like the last year or so. Um, so I've sort of learned a lot about that. It's really, um, it's a mental model that does not come supernaturally to me, uh, just sort of based on my, my like frugal Midwestern upbringing. Like we are very, uh, we hold self-sufficiency as a value, like strongly, but, uh, leverage is really, and I should say like with people who are probably used to the financial version definition of this, like this is not about specifically using debt, uh, to get a higher ROI, right? Like this is a leverage as a mental model as comes from like the basic simple machine in physics, right? I can't lift 800 pounds, um, you know, dead off the floor, but if you give me a 20 foot lever, I can lift 800 pounds, no problem. And so generalizing that slightly, there are in my framework, at least tools, um, products, people, and capital that can all sort of augment your natural strength and abilities and judgment and help you achieve things like that 800 pound lift that you could not have achieved, you know, without the support of that, that lever. Um, Naval's, uh, I, I sort of expanded Naval's like basic, uh, sort of three frameworks. Um, but I'll, so t- into tools, products, people, and capital, those are the four like buckets of leverage. Um, if you guys want, I'm happy to like talk through examples of those. This is a rabbit hole. I can go really far down. So I don't want to go too far on un- undirected. Please go ahead. That's very interesting. It's okay. Okay. Um, so tools, I think, um, you know, the, the example I used to, I like to use here is like a lumberjack standing in the forest. Like if you're a lumberjack with no tools, you're basically picking up sticks and you're not creating a lot of value. Um, your hourly rate is, I don't know, very low. Um, you're probably not quite subsistence farming your own wood, uh, with an ax, all of a sudden you can fell, you know, maybe a tree an hour, uh, with, so all of a sudden you can drop a tree, start a fire, go do something else. Uh, if you have a chainsaw, you can drop 10 trees an hour. And all of a sudden you like actually might be a business who can sell some wood to others, um, with a tractor and another guy, uh, now all of a sudden you're like a logging operation, right? So it, there's four different stages of leverage with different levels of tools. And actually in the last one, we brought in some people leverage um, to someone to help. Um, so in these four buckets, um, that's a tool illustration um, for product. I think of that as uh, a product of your mind, right? So writing down a standard operating procedure, encoding an algorithm, recording a podcast, like we are right now creating a product of ourselves uh, that will go on and, outlive us and serve hopefully thousands or tens of thousands of people in parallel, well into the future on demand. Um, these like thin digital clones of us that like we are not responsible for and that cost us nothing to maintain. Um, they can just kind of run on, um, in the people category. Um, you know, there are all sorts of people around us who can augment our skills and our abilities, you know, accountants, lawyers, um, helpers, like, I mean, anybody who's maintaining our sewer and water systems is providing some form of leverage at scale. Like we are all dependent on each other. Um, but you can look around to employ, you know, starting a new business. If you don't have all of the necessary skills or abilities or experience, you can find the right partner or bring them in. Um, and capital, obviously, uh, is sort of the like medium of exchange for all the rest of those, right? Um, you, and capital comes in many forms. It's not just like cash in the bank necessarily. Um, 
but you can look around your capital assets like your home and turn that into, you know, start Airbnb it or rent out your car or whatever. Um, so there's all kinds of capital assets you have. And then what I find is inventorying those periodically is a very helpful sort of starting mechanism for starting to think in leverage. And actually now every quarter I sit down, I've got, you know, my goals sort of over here or my, my concepts. And then I inventory the leverage that I have and I look at what I'm using, what I'm not using. And I look at what's available to me and sort of what I need to do in service of accomplishing my goals. So I, I and I start with like, what do I want to achieve? Um, and then work backwards into like what levers are available to me to accomplish that rather than the other way around. Sounds like something every company should do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can think of, you can absolutely think of a company as a, as a set of levers. Um, and almost always people have a blind spot around one or two of those um, that they're either uncomfortable with using or they don't think of them as leverage or they're afraid to get into it. And so, um, you know, I, I have a course where I try to sort of impart some of these frameworks and lessons and just continue to kind of bake this into people's heads. And a lot of the conversations I have, people are like, I'm really, really good at, you know, creating media, I create products all the time. I write, you know, standard operating procedures. I have no problem hiring and managing people. I love that piece. Um, but like I spend no time upgrading my tools and I spend, I have just have no patience for it. I hate it. And they just like, um, you know, maybe they don't have a capital mindset, capital allocators mindset. And so they just hoard, you know, any income and like keep it as cash. And they don't think about ways to redeploy that into hiring more people or adding new tools or scaling up their operation. And so there just forces this plateau at different levels. Um, conversely, somebody may be very much a capital allocator, but is not comfortable managing people um, or scared to take that leap or doesn't know how or um, just isn't sort of suited by personality to do that. And sort of, you know, even adding one person who is comfortable with that all of a sudden unlocks that as an opportunity. And when you have all four of those sort of um, feeding each other and compounding, you can really build, you know, I like to think of my work now is basically just building this mountain of levers. And so I'm standing in this place and my work is to like extend the levers around me and add new levers. And now like I can reach out and push on this and like, invest a bunch of capital in a tech company or create a new podcast with a new person or reach out and meet somebody new that I wouldn't have had before. And this work of sort of creating effort and compounding these things, you know, your, your mountain grows and your influence grows and your ability to create an impact grows over time. Um, and everyone who, you know, and others are getting leverage from me at the same time too, right? Like this is a very, um, we are all someone else's leverage and it's a very like, sort of mutually beneficial things, just learning to use the resources around you. How do you prioritize that? It's going to be really hard when you have so many options and it's all the alternative cost, I guess. Yeah, it is. Um, focus is a challenge for me sometimes um, and, and prioritization. Um, you know, it, it changes. I'm going through probably a life stage change where I'm changing a little bit from like um, sort of frantic accumulation uh, you know, Brent B. Shore calls this like the knife fight um, into like trying to be starting with like lifestyle a little more. Um, and like, what do I, what do I want to do? Like I now have, I used to have three options and I had to pursue all of them as aggressively as possible. Now I have a hundred options and I need to get better at filtering them and looking for the best three. Um, but if I do 10, I will wreck my own life through my own decisions um, by like trying to pursue too much. Um, and so just getting the hang of sort of like filtering those frameworks, getting better at saying no, um, which I'm still not particularly good at, 
Um, but yeah, it, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of new skills that, that sort of come up and you're like, why does my life suck right now? It's like, oh, there's a new skill that is required at this, in this like life level that I have not even begun. I didn't know was available or I didn't know was, um, didn't know it was a skill bar I needed to start filling up and, oh my God, I need to start learning that, uh, cause it's causing problems. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds to be, I mean, it must be a lot about uh, judgment. And um, the second chapter of the part on wealth is about uh, building judgment, which starts with uh, Naval's quote that you don't get rich by spending your time to save money. You get rich by saving your time to make money. And when I read that, I thought about the um, Robinson Crusoe economy example, where you're on an island um, and you need to feed yourself and you maybe... Say you, you pick some fruits uh, and you live on that and you pick more fruits and then you get time to to innovate, maybe, um, I don't know, come up with a fishnet to, to catch fish or so on. And I think this example was quite similar that, I mean, you you have to start by saving, but when you've done that, you can start to think about how to innovate. Of course, you can, in this, in this time, you can borrow money and... And start a business or, or so on, but I think I, I just think uh, the examples are quite uh, quite the same. What's your interpretation of of that saying? I, I think for probably most people listening to this podcast, that is that is more true than false, right? Like um, the N- Naval's encouragement is to like I think stop stop looking down at your expenses and trying to optimize what's there and start um, understand that like you will need time in order to create wealth, uh, in order to learn, in order to make different decisions or to evaluate opportunities or start new businesses, create something with this opportunity to have this uncapped return. Um, and it's really hard to do that if you're working, you know, if you're working 18 hours a day, or if you're working six hours a day, but then you spend 12, like, you know, washing Ziploc bags and planting your own garden and minimizing your costs to the bare bone. Um, I, I will say like, I think there's, you know, there's a million ways to make a million dollars. Um, you know, the, the people in the sort of financial independence, early retirement, like movement are interesting examples of like, I hate my job, but I'm only going to hate it for 10 years. Cause I'm going to save every single penny. And like, that is how I'm going to optimize my life. Um, like, I think that's pretty interesting. I think, you know, whatever we're on an investing podcast. So like, I think everybody here is pretty much going big, um, which is great. It's just a totally, it is a, um, it is probably even more true for us than for anybody else. Um, this, this Naval quote, which I imagine is why people are attracted to it. I do think, um, you know, I, I wrote a, a post about this recently, um, like different, uh, sort of every few orders of magnitude of, of net worth, you have to like totally change your strategy of thinking and, and planning. And so I think like the first few sort of orders of magnitude, I think probably up to maybe a hundred thousand dollars, like literally just don't even think about investing, just invest all your energy in saving your money. Um, and then the next is kind of like, yeah, investing matters, but you, if you, even if you optimize, even if you have amazing like returns on paper, like it's not going to have a huge impact on your life because you're the earning potential of your time still so massively outweighs the earning potential of your capital, but both are important. Um, cause you have a you know, savings account that's going to suck, like put it somewhere that is actually earning. But you you see this sort of switch flip where like at some point your capital can out earn your time. And that is really 
that is a very important switch. And then your strategy just becomes almost entirely like capital allocation and return optimization. Um, and, and your time like almost doesn't matter anymore, which I think is for people who don't know that that, that switch is out there, like that's what Naval is, is calling out in this. Um, you know, realize how much harder your money can work than you can and how how much more efficiently that scales than your own time. Um, you know, back to our kind of our first point about like, it's not, it's not about hard work, really. Um, it, it very much is about hard work to get off the ground. You know, as Charlie Munger says, like that first hundred thousand is a bitch, um, but you got to do it. And it's, by now, it's probably the first million. Because um, I, I don't know if he said that in 1930, but that's probably <laughs> when he was going through it. <laughs> yeah, the question is, where do you set your limit? How much uh, means do you need to live on? Yeah, which is a very personal question, right? Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. I love the Naval quote that people who live far below their means enjoy a freedom that people busy upgrading their lifestyles can't fathom. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the favors he does it for us is kind of draw this clear relationship between like our level of desires, our, our desire for our lifestyle and the work that we have to put in. There's a lot of ways to get your desires below your lifestyle. Um you know, one is to become a monk and work really, really hard on getting rid of your, your, all of your desires and you don't need anything. And that's wonderful. Um, you know, the other is to like work pretty hard on like getting pretty rich and like having more than you want. Um, but you, we, you need to work on creating a gap between what you have and what you want. And like, you always need to want less than you have, and then you'll be happy. Um, it's very, it's much easier said than done, but like that exists on a scale of monk to Bezos and like, you know, you can, you can pick your point on there. Um, but if at any point you're spending more time wanting than you are having, then your subjective experience is going to be miserable no matter where you are on that, on the actual sort of set of assets owned by humans, um, which is a very interesting and, and I think helpful sort of line to draw. I think a lot of us probably spend a lot of time looking at the next, you know, portfolio balance or, or, you know, completely arbitrary round number of a portfolio assets. And, um, you know, like, Oh, I'll be, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have a cigar when I get there and like, you know, then I'll be present, then I'll get fit. Then I'll, you know, go climb Kilimanjaro or whatever. Um, then like, you know, there, there's no, there's no reason to be putting most of that stuff off in practice for most people. So I think that that we should stop eating candy and go into the happiness part, go into Zen mode a bit. So. <laughs> oh, so I probably I probably like fed you some vegetables accidentally on that one, didn't I? I'm getting ahead of myself. It was a good mix, <laughs> uh, but maybe we can start with uh, how is um, I think you touched it before, but how is happiness connected to wealth? I, I don't know that they have to be, but I think for almost everybody they are. Um, Naval has a very succinct version of this that I hope I quote correctly, but um, desire is a contract you make to be unhappy until you get what you want. Um, and realizing that your own desires are at the root of all of your unhappiness is really an extremely powerful. And I would say personally annoying revelation, right? Like, um, it is, it is very difficult. It's a difficult pill to swallow. Um, but it's, it is a help, very helpful thing to know and to see happen in your own life. Um, and that doesn't have to be about wealth. You know, if you're going through some health crisis um, and you spend all of your time wishing and desiring that you weren't going through that health crisis, you're going to have a very miserable experience going through that. Um, and so, you know, desire far uh, eclipses wealth. I think we just spend so much more time 
um, thinking about wealth, basically because we're lucky enough to be pretty damn high up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, that we think in terms of wealth instead of safety, um, or, you know, some other need that we might have. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think desire and happiness are, are much more correlated than wealth and happiness. We're just lucky to kind of desire equals wealth eight, eight times out of 10 for probably most of us in the modern world. I come to think of the concept uh, in Japan, Ikigai, that uh, the reason for being, it's really the intersection of what you're good at, what you can be paid for and what the world needs and what you love. Then you combine all of those. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually thought I, I expected um, Naval's got to he kind of dismiss his purpose as like a driver of happiness in there, um, which I think is interesting. Um, but he, he also says like you know we all have to create our own meanings, you know, and, and um, you can create your own meaning, and if you can do that successfully, then you know it's very uh, it's a very empowering. <laughs> I think it's a very empowering message. It's it, the whole, like, um, probably the subtext of the whole happiness section is like, look, this is all subjective. Like you are in control of that voice in your head. Um, most people don't realize that most people don't spend any time attempting to control it, but that voice in your head really determines most of your, um, of your lived experience. And let's remember that it's malleable. Um, it's hard work to change it, but it is changeable. It's really clear that humans are hardwired with all these instincts and desires to survive and reproduce and and not to be happy. So, <laughs> so what can we do to trick the system? Are you asking me how to trick the system? If you have any any <laughs> advice on that, <laughs> I mean, Naval says that we one can be very happy as long as one isn't too caught up in their own mind. So, so how can we do that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, there's all kinds of prescriptions that become very personal. Uh, I think finding the things that work for you is, is kind of a lifelong journey and it's, it's somewhat ever changing. Um, you know, there's a list of sort of, um, the habits that Naval has cultivated that make him happier in, in there, which I think is interesting. Um, certainly everybody's going to have their own. Um, uh, but I, you know, some of his off the top of my head are like, you know, pausing when you feel the sun on your skin and like looking up and smiling. Um, another is like very practically, like just turn off your alarm clock, like, don't allow something, other things to like force their way into your day. Um, you know, practicing gratitude or creating space for meditation. Um, you know, he, he talks about a sort of a few different meditation practices he has in there. Um, you know, non-judgmental awareness, like most of the voices in our head are just spending their time um, judging immediately, which I think to your point is a very evolutionarily learned thing. Like we're constantly scanning our environment and like sort of reacting to it. Um, but training that voice to have like a positive first interpretation instead of a, instead of a negative, um, can be a a huge difference maker. Um, but it it is a very, you know, it's a discipline, it's a training. Um, you know, it it is, he says a few times like happiness is a choice, uh, which makes it feel trite and easy almost. Um, and I think that it's not fair to say like, Oh yeah, you just snap your fingers and you're happy. Like, there you go. Um, and if you can't do it, you suck. Like, no, like <laughs> not at it. Um, is it, in the same way that like, you know, fitness is a, a choice, but it's actually like a thousand choices or a million choices. It's choosing over and over and over again to do the thing that is in your long-term best interest that makes you fit or that makes you happy and chooses a positive um, sort of interpretation of something, uh, rather than following the path of least resistance, um, which is usually, 
you know, I, I think the path of least resistance for the ego is usually some sort of blame or judgment. Um, and the best path for you in the long run is actually some sort of um, appreciation or, or gratitude. Um, and if we can all sort of learn to make that our first reaction, um, we'll be we'll be better for ourselves uh, first and foremost, but like also better for everyone around us. Quite interesting to think about. Um, I mean, uh, on the health side, that um, when we when we talked about compounding before, I think it's uh, it really comes together that it's the it's the daily choices that uh, that is important. And Naval speaks about having his uh, morning uh, exercise, for example. Uh, and I, I just thought about that when you when you said that that it it feels like everybody says like oh. Now something happened to me. I got injured or I get, got sick. And often I think the answer is that, yeah, but you didn't you didn't do the right choices on a daily basis. Um, so how is uh, Naval prioritizing how to take care of himself? Yeah, I thought this was actually a really um, counterintuitive and very important point. And I actually almost uh, made this the first sentence of the book. Um, he says, like, without my physical health, I cannot take care of my my mental health and I can't take care of my family and I can't take care of my business and I can't take care of everything that falls down from that. Um, I was like, that's an incredibly important point. It's very true. Most of us spend a lot of time sacrificing our health in small ways every day to benefit these other things. And then the next component of that, which is what you asked about is like, okay, how does he prioritize it? And I think, you know, to your point, Eddie, the, the very, very first quote you brought up is like, you know, we pursue them in reverse order, like happiness, health, and then wealth. Um, you know, he wakes up every day and works out first thing in the morning, like his calendar reflects his priorities. Um, and he's like, I don't care what crisis is happening, you know, in, in my house or in my businesses or, you know, in the world, like I get up and I work out every day because that's my first priority, my physical fitness. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the meditation sort of follows on from that. Like that is his, um, sort of regimen for mental health. And that sort of is, becomes the next priority. And so that is the next thing that gets allocate time allocation in his day. Um, and I know, you know, so many people have their stated priorities or values. Um, and then, when you go through and a lot of times you work with a like, performance coach or whatever, and they'll do a calendar audit. And like, okay, well, you tell me these are your priorities, but your calendar is like, you know, your priorities is A, B, and C, and your calendar is full of X, Y, Z. Like what, what the hell is happening here? Right. Um, so it's, but it's very easy to, to not make those connections. And so, yeah, whatever, um, you know, making scheduling and orienting your life around what actually are priorities and thinking about your priorities from a very first principles thing you know what what is the foundation of everything else that kind of comes next yeah and people often say well he's so rich and he has so much time and it's so easy for him and i don't have time and i have to work all the time and when should i get that into my schedule but as you say it's a priority one of the reasonable rebuttals um that people have of the book is kind of like yeah but you're already rich um and, I, and so i think like to to what extent you know, he was doing many of these things early on. Um, you know, and he says like, I spent a lot of time unhappy and I spent a lot of time unhealthy. Um, but he also says like, I don't think those were necessary components to me becoming wealthy. Like, it's not like I had to do those things. He's like, I would have done the exact same stuff that I did. I just would have done it with more emotional stability, less anger, more health, more energy if I had invested in my health. Right. Um, so I don't think um, we treat these, we treat these as zero sum, you know, like I have 10 hours 
and I can either put 10 like equally valuable hours into my wealth creation effort, or, you know, I'm sacrificing two of those 10 units to go into health, which doesn't make me wealthy. And like what I found in a, in a chapter of my life, when for the really the first time I was prioritizing my physical health over, you know, and I'm just, I was taking those two hours a day to like go to the gym and that became my priority and do healthy food prep. It was like, I was better at my job when I did that with eight hours of effort, <laughs> but, but they were high, high energy, um, sort of like thoughtful things. Like it, for the last two units, the worst two units of work that I gave up that day, like I gained back, you know, three or four in energy and attention and vitality. So, um, feeling that for the first time, at least in my case, was really helpful to kind of break that, you know, linear one unit of time, zero sum sort of mindset. And I also really like the practical example of uh, Naval's mental fitness, that he just sits down on a chair, closes his eyes, and he sits there for one hour and let the thoughts come. And that's so simple, but I'm, I'm sure it's not that easy. And I I really, it stayed with me. It's something that I would like to do, but I, I still haven't done it. So still, but coming from him, it's especially interesting because you can hear this from people who are like not super financially savvy, but he is, and he has this personal hourly rate of several thousands of dollars. And it really shows how valuable he thinks this is. So can you, what do you think are the benefits of this meditation method? Yeah, he. Um, I, I have a hard time remembering exactly what is and isn't covered in the book, but I know I know I've heard him talk about this before. Um, you basically get to this like you create space for these things to come up, um, and it, and you almost uh, when you create space, the sort of the things that need to be processed like work their way to the top, um, and you find out that you're still carrying a grudge from you know somebody for ten years ago or you're carrying judgment about this thing or you're carrying a desire that you didn't know you had. And when you give them space, you kind of, you know, you, you get this um, issue that pops up and then you can kind of think through it or process it or grieve it or forgive it or whatever it is and allow it to sort of, you know, pass over you, pass through you, let go, like clear that item out. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing he says with that practice, he's like, don't bother if you can only do it once. Like, it's just going to be a weird hour. Um, but do it every single day for 60 minutes for, I think, 60 or 90 days. And that discipline will change your life um, because you will, you know, uh, process all of this like cruft and sort of mental debt that has accrued over the last sort of years of your life. And now I've, I think he calls it like mental inbox zero. Um, and so now he's like, I can just sit and there's no issues. There's no problems. There's no complaints. There's no grievances. There's no, um, so I can just sit there and kind of like appreciate, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it's like in his head, like in that hour, but he describes it as sort of blissful. It's like, I don't know if it's a constant state of appreciation. I don't know if it's constant, if it's just nothing. Um, I don't know if it's concentrating on, you know, some tiny breeze and just appreciating the smallest thing that he can find. Um, yeah, I, like, I don't know. I haven't been through that road. I don't know what the end of that journey has looked like. I also imagine that's quite personal, but um, that is how he has described what he's gotten out of it. Um, and I mean, I, I think you're, to your point, putting it through that sort of um, filter of like the opportunity cost of his time is incredibly high, right? Like he has to really want 
to do that um, and find that to be an incredibly valuable thing. Um, but I, it's also an interesting, I, I wonder, it's, so through that lens, I wonder to what extent it's kind of an illustration of taking that hour and sacrificing it is almost a symbol of the uncorrelate nature of like time and returns, right? Um, if there was that deeply linear relationship between effort and outcome, that hour becomes really, really important. Um, if it's actually like, you know, the more I meditate, the wealthier I become, then sacrificing that hour and, and using it as a periodic sort of constraint and reminder and demonstration of the fact that like, you know, I could work one minute a year and have 90% of the same outcome that I would if I worked 90 hours a week um, is, is a really interesting thing. And you know, I think we find when we place massive constraints on ourselves that we can a lot of times drive the same outcomes in a lot less time. Um, we just have this sort of uh, script in our heads about what we think needs to go into the work or, um, you know, we try to earn it more um, and demonstrate how hard we're working so that we are perceived to have earned it um, and deserve it, which is a very sort of Benjamin Franklin, Charlie Munger idea, which I, I resonate with, um, but is another sort of source of, um, I don't know, an unresolved paradox in my head. Like, I think both of those things are important and true, and I, I don't know how to untangle them from each other yet, but maybe I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I think in in our view, your book on on Naval has uh, every chance of uh, of standing the test of time and and becoming a classic. Uh, we we re read in in the beginning of the book. Um, you write that concepts and interpretations change over time, medium, and context, which is maybe sort of a disclaimer. Or how how would you explain that? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's both a little bit of a disclaimer and a, a little bit of a truism, I think. Right. Um, you know, I, I, it's hard to not read these books for, you know, you read, uh, meditations by Marcus Aurelius and you're kind of like, I wonder how much of the original intent is what's being received by me a thousand years, 2000 years later. Like, right. I, I don't know. Um, so it's a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, but I think it's also just a very helpful thing to remember. And I mean, like by definition, everything in this book, I took out of context, um, so it is very, um, I, I, I didn't want Naval to be like catching heat in 10 years for something that he said in here, um, that I took out of context or, or changed. Um, and I didn't, and I don't want people to, um, I, I don't know, over index on something that, that is misinterpreted, I suppose. Um, I, I just feel a lot of responsibility for creating a book, knowing how much of, myself was shaped by books <laughs> um, in, in turn that I'm like, well, I want people to appreciate um, this may not be the original intent and to like, you know, you use judgment as you let these ideas enter your head and, um, and truly to remember that context is, is very important. And, uh, you know, the, the inflection of different words can totally change meaning. And so when I take a transcript and turn it into a book and then put it next to a transcript from a few years different a few years you know later um that can totally change the meaning of something and it's very possible that i that i have misinterpreted something um and in intent that naval had uh, as something i was very conscious of as i tried to create this what do you think people reading your book a hundred years from now will think i don't know it's an interesting question 
Um, God, I hope they're reading it a hundred years from now. In so, in some ways, like some of these are timeless human problems, right? Like people have been trying to figure out how to be happier, like forever. Um, I, th- I, I hope that the, I, I think that the, uh, the wealth section will be out of date, uh, sooner than the happiness section, um, just due to fundamental human nature. Uh, hopefully we're living in a state of incredible abundance. Um, but also as Buffett said, which I think is one of the scariest and truest things ever. Like, you know, it's not, it's not greed that drives the world, but envy. Um, I think we could have a lot of abundance and, and still have plenty of unhappiness. Arguably, like that's the state that many of us live in now. Um, and I wonder what'll happen. I wonder how much the attention and energy, um, of humanity will sort of shift towards deliberate work on happiness in a hundred years, um, as, as that be, maybe becomes a little more obvious, right? Like maybe, um, maybe it will become clear to us that like our subjective experience is controllable. Our subjective experience is, um, is, is at the end of the day, really most of what matters to how we live our, our lives internally. Um, and it, it's interesting to see, you know, I, I can imagine that being an, an incredible whole field um, in the future, right? Like <laughs> I remember, like I was, I was very like snarkily saying something about how, like at the, at the current rate of like, uh, at which people are becoming life coaches, like by 2060, everyone will be a life coach. And somebody else is like, is, would that be so bad? Um, and I was like, Oh, like, I guess not like that. Pro- like we could all probably use a little bit of external, um, sort of interest in our own subjective experience. And maybe we're transitioning from this sort of like s- stoic, um, sort of pioneer mindset to this, like, no, it really, it matters. Like it matters a lot. And, um, and maybe it matters the most, uh, sort of increasingly, like as we are, as we're safe and fed and watered and cared for and, you know, sort of, um, abject poverty is decreasing rapidly and sort of continues to. And, um, you know, if we have a second sort of industrial revolution, um, that'll get even more, become way more true way more quickly and but we are still living in these sort of like you know outdated meat things that are with brains and emotions and reactions designed for hunting and gathering and living outside and this can become really hard and important to control that um and learn to manage it so maybe maybe that'll be um you know one brick in the in the monument that becomes sort of a a big focus on um, mental awareness and discipline and health and training. To just put you on, on the spot a bit there, um, what is the single most important idea or principle you have gained from Naval? It depends on the day um, and, and what, sort of what I'm trying to do. I think the, I would say that the idea of leverage has totally changed my life and how I think about my work. And I, it hit me at just the right time. Um, it's it's changed a lot about my working life. Um I mean, I, I knew I had had installed in me before that the idea that happiness was a choice and that the perspective was there. I think probably the relationship between, um, between desire and the, the, just reflecting on, um, how easy it is to create new desires. Uh, you know, you, you can scroll Instagram for one minute and leave it with 20 new desires. It's, it's a desire machine. Like almost all of social media is, but, um, to me, like Instagram is uniquely, um, but that's so much of what we do. Our recreation is now like basically desire creation. Like we just look around for shit to want. Um, and it's, 
it's a pernicious sort of effect on, on happiness now that I, I understand the, the relationship more deeply between desire and unhappiness. So um, that's probably the most important sort of um, from the mental, mental awareness uh, perspective. And on your own social media, at least on Twitter, you say that uh, right now, at least your byline is unemployed yet busy, so, <laughs> which is a great quote. So, so how are you allocating your time right now? Um, well, I try to go to the gym every day. So health first, you know, like we're, like we're talking about, um, I do a lot of, uh, learning and reading. I'm reading a lot about, um, have been reading a lot about crypto for the last year and just trying to, to catch up on, on sort of the technological innovations that are happening. Um, I started my own podcast that I'm having a ton of fun with, um, and, and writing more and just like processing ideas. So, um, reading and working through those things, um, and, and just creating and bringing people together. Right? I started, I created a course on leverage. That was sort of the last year I'm working on my next book. Now, um, I'm starting a small venture fund, um, to sort of invest in, in increasing sort of technologies here. And, um, hopefully accelerate some of this, uh, some of the things we've been talking about and bring some new startups into the world. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the, the gamut on the work side. Um, you know, there's plenty going on in the personal life, like getting married next year. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a lot to do. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's been sort of, um, the work now and it's sort of forming itself into, into a new thing, but I really just sort of let myself off the leash and just like follow my own curiosity for a while, uh, which has led some really uh, chaotic collection of topics on my blog that I'm trying to narrow back down and get into a little bit of a focus again, but, um, it's, it's been really fun to explore. Do you schedule unproductive time, like recovery time? Um, I try to just not schedule anything. Um, which is going pretty well. And then, and then I just sort of follow the energy. Like I default to working. Um, but I'm getting better at realizing sort of when the, the like um, marginal rate of productivity goes down or when I'm just like not enjoying it anymore, then I just like stop and go to the gym or go to the sauna or go for a walk or whatever. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely like err on the side of overworking myself rather than underworking. Um, so I try to like move that pendulum, and just create like slightly different habits around it and, you know, appreciate the fact that, that uh, I can do that now. Um, but yeah, it, it's much easier to, um, it is easier to see the, the decrease in marginal productivity, but harder to accept it when you're just like sort of working on your own. Um, but, uh, I also find sometimes like a change is good as a rest and it, there's enough different things to be working on and excited about that. Um, there's just sort of shift attention and start doing something else. Something Naval really shares with um, with Charlie Munger and Peter Bevelin and and those is the is uh, that of having a like a basic understanding of of general topics such as microeconomics, game theory, uh, psychology, and then to build specific knowledge and be on the really, I mean, cutting edge in a in a certain area. Um, how do you split your time between uh, like getting the basics and and uh, going into the to the more detail. Oh yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I I default to being much more of a generalist, I think, than a specialist. Um, I, I agree with the importance of it. I definitely miss. I'm trying to like go back and fill in um, some of my like core my core science stuff. Like I'm not particularly good at fundamental physics. I'm decent with economics and math, um, and language. Uh, 
I think the specialist pieces sort of like come up. I'm almost like driven by opportunity in those more. Um, and so I, I, I kind of like in this, in this cycle of life, kind of like, all right, step back, take a really broad view again, um, and then figure out where to specialize again. And so, um, you know, I've done a little bit of a spike on crypto recently, um, over the last year or so. I'm probably, I feel like confident enough to invest um, there, but far from world class on any of this stuff. I mean, it's happening so quickly that a lot of people, um, you know, there are a lot of people who, who have been in it a lot longer and learned a lot more, but I, I've sort of um, satiated my, the, the, at least for now, like the depth um, as a generalist. I would really like to do a similar uh, sort of spike in um, both nuclear and nanotechnology um, as, a, as a result of a, a book that I just read that I kind of like have my eye on, on becoming deeper in those. Um, and I've given a lot of thought actually about how to kind of like reinforce the generalist piece. Um, and there's some cool, like uh, I would like to do um, like the online great books program and like some go back through some of the great um, reads of the Western world. Uh, I've thought about sort of doing like a, you know, some of the people I read and admire have gone back and done like open courseware stuff on, on physics or, or, um, you know, engineering or something like that, that I, you know, those are values that I hold, um, that would be really fun to kind of go back and do. And it might, it might be really helpful for, um, some of the, the upcoming specialization, specialty studies that I want to do. Um, but I think investing is a good, uh, especially tech investing is a great forcing function for that. Um, you know, my natural tendency would be like slowly layer as a generalist, but if I'm like, Oh shit, like we gotta, we gotta invest in some of this. I gotta get like, you know, I gotta go deep on, on this quickly. If I'm going to feel confident, um, sort of allocating capital. And that's a really, um, that is part of the good feedback loop, right? Like I want to know what I know and I want to be driven to learn more by the fact that I have to put chips on the table. And, um, you know, that's the interesting part about investing to me is it's not, you know, if, if investor is my only legacy, uh, like it, it's something of all and Buffett have said the same thing. Like if investing is my only legacy, like I will have failed. Um, but I think it's a great, uh, it's a great way to test your beliefs and your current understanding of the world and see what you know. Maybe this is a bit of a difficult question, but when do you know when you know enough to invest, for example? Buffett speaks about having a circle of competence and it's 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 quite hard to define. I think. Yeah, it is quite hard to define. And I think it's, it's, um, it is increasingly hard. It is harder the more you try to add. Um, but it changes the threshold changes, I think, depending on, you know, the, the scale of the investment and who you're investing with and, you know, what, what your thesis is, right. It, it does not take nearly as much conviction to say, um, and well, your timing matters too, right? So like use the case study of the internet, like it would have taken a lot of conviction, you know, to say like the internet's going to change the world in 1974. It did not take nearly as much in 19 or in, you know, 2005. Um, but it was still actually not that obvious in 1996, for example. Um, and so what is the, what is the depth of your thesis, right? Like, are you saying the internet's going to change the world and I want to expose myself to that phenomenon? Um, that takes like a reasonable amount of conviction, but not super, super deep specificity about uh, how, like, like which particular parties are going to change the world. Um, if you say like, which of these companies are going to survive for 20 years, that's a very difficult question. If you say, which of these companies are going to be 
the best source of returns for the next 20 years? That's an even harder question, right? So um, I guess ask yourself like what thresholds you're trying to meet um, for each of these and, and then sort of like scale it appropriately. Um, you know, new questions emerge as you go down the rabbit hole, of course. Um, but, and, the, and then the opportunity cost of that incremental study time, like what are you, um, are you giving up the building of an entirely new circle of competence to, to, uh, to continue to expand this one? And what's the, what's the sort of ROI on that? Um, and also what you're interested in, right? Like, you know, I, when you find yourself like, I will probably stop short of like the individual structure of lab experiments in like nuclear power. Um, but <laughs> like somewhere between somewhere between that and like, Hey, how close are we? And like, is this going to happen? And what are the implications of it happening? And um, you know, who are the smartest people in the world on it and where do I continue to read on it? And um, you know, so that's all it's a constantly shifting thing it's a very good question um that's that's probably like half intuitive and half um sort of game theory almost really it's just, it's almost like a portfolio you're building a portfolio of knowledge in the same way that you're building a portfolio of stocks and you kind of like look around with you allocate your scarce resources so coming back to the book a bit uh you've written one about naval now it's the, the first almanac can we expect more almanacs or what is the point here <laughs> what what is the point i don't know um the point like uh i did this really this this opportunity just sort of like poof arrived out of nowhere like i had i did not see it coming i did not particularly engineer it um and i didn't know that it was going to be a book when i started the project and i definitely i didn't even really know that it was going to be an, uh, called an almanac it just kind of felt right and that all sort of emerged um having now been through the process i'm like oh god i wish um I wish this book existed for other people or there are other people who I wish to study in this to the same extent that I've studied Naval. And um, it turns out that, you know, reading everything they've ever written and then doing a gigantic book sized jigsaw puzzle of every concept they've ever said is a really good way to learn um, what those people have to offer and um, sort of internalize that. So I am working on a, a second book um, that is also an almanac um, for, uh, and I don't think I've, I've said this, publicly before but I, the website is up so i think i can now um balaji srinivasan he is the uh or was the cto of coinbase um he's a founder of a number of companies investor in a bunch more he's like a futurist uh he's a, he's a bit more um sort of of a technical sort of like math oriented person than naval is um but he's got very interesting thought he's he's about as you can see sort of uh, and predict and project farther out than most people I've ever read before. Um, so I'm learning a ton and um, sort of thinking about a lot more about like the nature of, of truth and the impacts of technology and, um, you know, but also a founder, also an investor, also immensely sort of practical day-to-day -day person. And um, yeah, I'm, I don't know. We're, we're chipping away at it day by day and I'm loving the process again and um, having a lot of fun with it. So um, yeah, this, that's, the, that's the next big project that'll, that'll come out. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and uh, really look forward to read it. Um, and about reading, we know you love to read and uh, we've touched upon several books so far. Um, do you have any other books that you, th that you feel are really must-reads? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, so I have one that is like fresh and exciting. This is the first book in like a few years that has like really changed my perspective and might change the trajectory of my life. I absolutely dearly love this book. It's called uh, Where Is My Flying Car by J. Stores Hall. And this guy is a brilliant sort of engineer and um, researcher, scientist. He's worked all over the place. He's worked in a ton of different fields. The, the sort of premise is examining like, why we don't have flying cars. Um, when, when that seemed like so inevitable, sort of in like the forties and fifties, but this book is probably only half about flying cars, like maybe not even, but it examines like all of the fundamental technologies that exist, but haven't been pushed forward or haven't been well distributed or haven't been expanded upon in particular, nuclear energy and, uh, nanotechnology. He's like, if we had been advancing nuclear energy and nanotechnology at the same rate that we have been advancing uh, basically internet and software, we would basically be in the midst of a second industrial revolution where like energy would become absolutely too cheap to meter. Um, and, and energy is actually a much better sort of predictor of um, lifting people out of poverty than money, right? Like um, energy begets much more of that. And on a nanotech side, it, it is basically true, like well-engineered nanotechnology is the ability to create almost any imaginable material at any scale, like from an atomic level on up. And so with those two things, we could all of a sudden do all this crazy, crazy shit, like build a hundred kilometer tall uh, and 300 kilometer long structure out of diamond that lets us send stuff into orbit for like pennies per pound and build like flying cities and build floating islands and build colonies anywhere. And anybody can have a flying car. Like the combination of these two things is like an utterly unimaginably abundant and incredible future. And both of these things exist like, um, or are within reach or are, um, sort of possible in our lifetimes, given like enough energy and effort and resources. Um, and it makes me both incredibly impatient with the previous generation for not pushing on these things and doing the work to get us there, but also really, really optimistic about the future. I got a long rant on this book. I love it so much. I want everyone in the world to read it. I want every investor to read it. I want every student to read it so that we have like just piles and piles more scientists and engineers and investors investing in these technologies. And it's just um, both annoying and incredibly inspiring. Um, and it paints a beautiful, beautiful, very exciting, uh, sort of set of possibilities for the future. Um, and you learn a ton of cool, like math and science and physics along the way, mind blowing <laughs> facts in like every few pages. I'll, I'll stop now. Cause I can see you guys just <laughs> laughing at how hilariously unnecessary this rant is. Um, but I have never wanted people to read a book more in my life. No, it's really interesting. <laughs> This guy's a genius. Like this guy is so brilliant and he worked very hard on this book. He became a pilot in order to kind of study this and you learn about the, like, I don't know, it's, it's incredibly well-researched and well-written um, and it's brilliant thinking and inspiring writing. And I won't say it's the easiest read in the world. Like it is technical is written like a little bit by an engineer. It's not a textbook, but like, um, but like stick with it and it will change your perception of reality. And hopefully like the, 
trajectory of the human race. Is there any book you would like to exist that, but you don't want to write it? Oh, I would really like to read a book about the uh, sort of like the, the marriages and family lives of um, irregular, highly successful, highly powerful people through like history and today. I, there's a lot of stuff that's like in biographies that it's just very difficult to read like a thousand biographies, but I would want to read like a cross section of the like 20 or 30 most interesting um, sort of aspects of of sort of unique people. Um, so I think that would be a really interesting, yeah, like fa family lives of, of incredible people, um, both to see um, sort of what some of them sacrificed, um, but also to, to hopefully see counterexamples of like what does not have to be sacrificed in order to achieve, you know, some truly incredible um, high impact things. You know, I, I would expect it and hope to see people sort of on both sides of that. Both what to do and what to avoid, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like I, I think um, you know, I don't, I don't want to believe that uh, you can't have like a helpful, you know, healthy relationships with your kids and be a great entrepreneur. Um, but I, I'm sure that some people have given that up in order to accomplish their their goals. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I definitely want to want to see both sides of that argument, and um, hopefully, you know, more, more evidence on one than the other. But if they pull, if they did it, how they did it. So thank you, Eric, for a very thoughtful conversation about you and the book. And I, I just want to end with the, the book is open for free. Actually, you can read it for free. But but I would I would say to our audience that uh, it's better to buy the the physical copy or or the Kindle version. Yeah, thank thank you for mentioning that. Actually, yeah, it's it's uh, all the book stuff is on uh, navalmanac.com, um, and all the digital versions are available for free. Um, so w whether you are strapped or just curious or want to try it out or whatever. Um, That was that was a request of Naval's to make the digital versions available for free. Very happy to do it. Uh, we've had millions of people read the free version. This thing's getting translated into like 20 languages. Um, and I'm really excited and grateful that it's sort of reaching people all over the world and in, in various languages. I do I think anyone on earth can get something valuable out of this book. Um, and I hope that uh, I, I hope it helps in some way, right? My copy is insanely highlighted, so that's uh, that's that's the goal. Where can our audience follow you? Uh, I'm my personal website is ejorgensen.com. I, I send some sort of uh, email every week with like a podcast or a new post or something um, where I just kind of explore ideas. I'm on Twitter all the time at Eric Jorgensen. Um, and if you're either of those two places, you'll get info about um, my old book, my new book, whatever else is is coming. Um, but get, get prepared for some, some random tangents, you know, I'll, I'll, there'll probably be some, some fission, maybe some nanotech. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Uh, I don't know. I appreciate you guys having me on so much. Um, I love conversations like this. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.